On a September day in 2007, Ron Catani took Holy Communion to Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Ron had started bringing people the Eucharist just a few months before. Actually, he signed up to bring communion to the hospital by accident. Ron meant to sign up to be an extraordinary minister at Mass. But still, there he was at the hospital. So here I am on Sundays after my mom and I would go to church, going over to Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital and spending part of the afternoon there. And so one afternoon I was there and I went to this room, a kid by the name of Enrique. Enrique was maybe 20 years old. Ron remembers that Enrique had no hair. He probably was being treated for cancer. Ron gave Holy Communion to Enrique. And then the two got to talking. I said, so are you you in college? And he said, yeah, he went to CSU. And um, I said to him, are you gonna be able to go back to uh, college this fall? And he looked at me and he said, it all depends on what God has planned for my life. That stopped me dead in my tracks. I had never seen someone that age in my own life give that kind of a profession of faith. And it really just stunned me to to my core. I don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he lived because he really helped change my life. The thing is, Ron was talking with Enrique about the next steps in his life, but Ron didn't really know what his next steps would be. Ron was 54 at the time. He had spent almost 35 years working for the state of Colorado as a geologist. I knew that at 55, I could retire with a full retirement, 35 years with the state. But Ron wasn't sure what he would do next. He had seen a lot of people at his level of state government move on to become government affairs officials at corporations or even to become lobbyists. Those jobs paid really well. But Ron's heart wasn't in a corporate job. I felt like going to those kind of jobs was like selling insider secrets. And yes, I was very good at what I did in my career, but I didn't think it was something that you marketed. So my prayer became in 2003 at age 50, tell me what you want me to do next in my life. This is where Jesus started to take over. Ron's story is unique. It's a vocation story, but Ron was a late vocation. He was ordained a priest in May of 2013, when he was 60 years old. On May 18th, 2013, seven years ago, just a couple of Mondays ago, I was ordained a priest, so I'm seven years old, even though I'm an old man. And the priesthood was a total surprise for Ron. To be honest, If you'd have said to me 13 years ago, now that 13 years later, I'd be a Catholic priest, I would have thought that you had three heads, none of which was working properly. This week on our show, we're talking about people who experience major life shifts. We have stories of people whose lives took dramatic and unexpected turns from what they were before, and often became much, much better than they were before. We'll tell you about a Catholic mother of six who took the plunge into the sometimes unforgiving world of stand-up comedy, and the story of a high-powered Wall Street lawyer who left behind a big legal career in favor of ministering to prisoners on Florida's death row. But first, we have the rest of Father Ron's vocation story. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. 
Ron grew up in a Catholic family in West Denver in the 1960s. When I was eight years old, I remember being on in our front yard and I said, I want to be a priest. Of course, I was a good Catholic Italian boy. So every Catholic Italian boy says, I want to be a priest. Just like every little boy, Ron's dreams changed. For a while, he wanted to be an architect, then an engineer. Engineering stuck. I went to undergraduate and graduate school at the Colorado School of Mines. And Ron took a job at the governor's office. Ron was good, really good, at what he did. He was co-founder of Colorado's Office of Energy Conservation, and he even helped write a solar energy plan for the state. I helped uh, manage both here and at the national level through coordination with the White House, um, the gasoline crisis in the late 1970s. A few years later, Ron took a job with Colorado's Department of Natural Resources. That's a really important department in a state like Colorado. Ron spent 28 years there and eventually became the agency's deputy director. Ron never married, but throughout the years of his career, he always had a heart for service. He spent a lot of time volunteering with organizations like Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Salvation Army. And those groups really appreciated Ron's service. They gave him a lot of awards over the years. And being an only child, Ron was a devoted son and also the primary caregiver to his parents. My parents were 44 and 46 when I was born, and uh, I'm an only child. And so a lot of my decisions were made so that I could take care of them. My dad lived to 94, passed away in 2001. My mother lived to 99 and a half, and I was able to be with both of them when they were called home. And so there was a beautiful relationship there. In 2003, Ron turned 50. And it was then, near the end of a very successful career, that Ron had his crisis of vocation, wondering what God could possibly be calling him to next. A few months after his conversation with Enrique at the hospital, Ron was in Chicago with his mother visiting the National Shrine of St. Therese. During Mass, I just heard this phrase, you could be a deacon. And so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Ron had no idea what went into becoming a Catholic deacon, or even really what deacons do. When Ron got back to his Denver parish a few weeks later, he realized that the parish didn't even have any deacons, so he had no one to even ask. So I did what everybody does. When you've got a question, I Googled, what do deacons do? So I saw online what deacons in the Catholic Church do and didn't really um, think much more about it. He didn't think much about it until later that year in October when Ron attended an informational session at the Archdiocese of Denver about becoming a deacon. That October 23rd was gonna be my 55th birthday. And so I thought, well, I'll submit the application on my 55th birthday. About two weeks later, Ron got an email from the head of the diaconate program. His application had been rejected. Well, I was pissed, to use a theological term. Ron happened to be meeting with his pastor, Monsignor Bernie Schmitz, that evening at the rectory, and he complained to him about the fact that, despite being a lifelong Catholic and a devoted member of his parish for 40 years, his application to be a deacon had been rejected. He looked at me and he said, you know, Deacon Smith, who is head of the diaconate program, stays here when he uh, comes here to run the program, because at that point he was retired and living in Arizona. And he said, he's the one that pulled your application. And he said to me, he said, is Ron's calling to the diaconate or to the priesthood? And I literally stopped, looked at him and said, 
and this was the Holy Spirit, it wasn't me, I said, of course it's the priesthood, but that's not a practical option in my life. Because I was 55 years old, I was caregiver to my 99-year-old mother. He said, well, do you want to talk about it? So I said, sure. The very next night, Ron's mom called to say that she wasn't feeling well. So Ron stopped by her condo to check on her. She had some back pain. So to be safe, Ron took his mom to the hospital. They checked her out for about the next four hours. And what they thought was that a disc might have collapsed in her back. So they gave her some medication and, uh, and, and said, you can go home. So about midnight, we went home. And so I decided to stay at her place um, that night. The next morning, the pain hadn't gotten better. Ron's mom didn't want to get out of bed. At nine o'clock, she said, well, maybe I better get up and go to the bathroom. And so um, I helped her go to the bathroom and she died in my arms. Ron rushed his mother to the hospital again, but it was too late. Ron called up Monsignor Bernie, but this time the conversation was not about the priesthood. It was about his mom's funeral. A few days after his mother's funeral on Thanksgiving night, Ron called Monsignor Bernie again. I called Monsignor Bernie and I said, well, maybe we better talk. And he said, well, if you want to, he says, I don't want to push anything. Ron officially started discerning the priesthood that December, but in January, he got an email that threw kind of a, a weird wrench into his plans. Here's an email from the diaconate program that says, your interview for the diaconate program is January 28th. So I sent a note to Monsignor Bernie saying, I thought I'd been rejected. Ron did the interview for the permanent diaconate, and they told him it was clear that he had a call to be ordained. But whether that was to the diaconate or the priesthood, that was up to Ron. If you decide that you um, your calling is to the, the permanent diaconate, please let us know by March 15th, because the program will begin the following week. And so we need to get your paperwork going. Ron had already scheduled a nine-day retreat that he hoped would help him discern whether he was called to the priesthood. But the dates overlapped with the diaconate program deadline. The decision had come to a head and Ron was torn. He didn't know what to do. The next day, he decided to go to Mass downtown. So I go down to Holy Ghost and um, Father Jeremy Pollan was celebrating Mass. He was the one that I had started going to confession to every week, even though we'd never met in person because I'm a behind-the-screens guy. So he celebrated Mass, and at the conclusion of the Mass, he did a small family baptism. And when the baptism was finished, because I'm sitting in the back pew of the, of the church on the Mary side, and I thought, I'm just going to sit here and pray. So when the, when the baptism was over, he brought the baby over to the Mary altar and um, consecrated the baby to the Blessed Mother. When that happened, I started to cry, and I cried for 45 minutes. That was the moment that the Blessed Mother delivered me to her son. And I knew at that point that the calling was to the priesthood. In April, the Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Colorado gave Ron the prestigious Distinguished Alumnus Award. That really meant a lot to Ron. And one month later, on May 15, 2008, Ron entered the seminary. What Jesus did is that he landed every plane in my life for what was important to me. He landed the planes of my professional career because I ended up getting recognized for every aspect of that professional career. He landed every plane in my community career because he gave me the ultimate recognition 
from each of those. My church work, um, being the district governor of Sarah, the wor work that I did nationally for Sarah, the work that I did for Mother of God, everything was tied up with a beautiful bow. A and then the last thing was, both of my parents died in my arms because he knew that I wanted to take care of them until their end. So all four of those chapters of my life, the planes landed, but he did it for a very interesting reason. And that is that what he said, and I didn't realize it until after I went into seminary, was, okay, you've gotten to do everything you wanted to do. Now it's my turn. It's now seven years since Ron became Father Ron. He loves being a priest. But not everyone has embraced this shift in his life and his priorities. When I went into seminary, it was amazing how many people walked out of my life because I held positions of power in so many things. I was no, no, no use to them anymore. And they walked out because I was no longer living their expectation for my life. Where's the grace in all of that? The grace is in all of that is that in the last 11 years across the country, more people have come into my life than ever walked out of my life. Father Ron is a really happy guy, and I don't just mean he has a sunny disposition or an infectious personality, although those things are true. You can just tell that Ron has found a lot of joy in his vocation as a priest. The fact that I can confect the Eucharist, I mean, it almost brings me to tears at every Mass when I look that the body and blood of Jesus is in my hands. I was the guy that God gave the most perfect life for the first 55 years of his life. And it was perfect. Every aspect I enjoyed and I loved. But in spite of all of that, I haven't had more peace and joy than I've had in the last 11 years. Coming up, Jen Fulweiler has become a Catholic household name for her blog, her radio shows, and her books. And last year, Jen started something new. That story after the break. Hi everyone, this is CNA producer Jonah McKeown. If you're a fan of CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk, there's a good chance you listen on your morning or evening commute. As you know, fewer people are commuting to work right now, and as a result, fewer people are listening to podcasts. The listenership for many podcasts has dropped by 10% or so between March and April. Listening and subscribing to our podcast won't cost you a dime, but it does help us out a lot. The more people listen to our podcasts, the more likely it is that podcast apps will recommend our shows to new listeners. So, after you listen to this episode of CNA Newsroom, consider queuing up another one. We've included suggestions in this week's show notes for some of our favorite episodes we've produced over the years, so that even after this episode ends, you can keep on enjoying the high-quality Catholic podcasting you've come to expect from us. And while you're here, consider subscribing to the show. Just search for CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk on your favorite podcast app, tap the subscribe button, and enjoy. And now, back to the episode. Jen. 
Jennifer Fulweiler is a lot of things. She's a wife and a mom of six kids. She's a former atheist who converted to Catholicism. She's a Catholic speaker, a best-selling author, and a podcast host. And last year, she took on a new role as a stand-up comedian. I think that laughter is a really great way to relieve whatever burdens you're struggling with because it reminds you not to take yourself and your life so seriously. And there's a great Catholic understanding there that, you know, when, when we can laugh at ourselves and our circumstances, it helps remind us of the big picture. Jennifer launched the Naughty Corner Tour late last summer. The title is a reference to the timeout corner that most parents know all too well. It's been an incredibly successful show, selling out most of the venues where she has performed. But the transition to stand-up comedy was a move that surprised even Jennifer herself. She liked stand-up comedy, and she had studied it, but she just never envisioned doing it herself. I didn't see any other women with my profile doing this, and so I just kind of had it in my head that if you're a Catholic mom of six, you just don't do stand-up comedy. People just don't do that. But after months of feeling like she was supposed to be doing something different, she decided to give it a try. It was one of these God thunder and lightning moments. One day, sort of out of the blue, I got this inspiration to try it. And it was one of those situations where as soon as I stepped into stand-up comedy, I got confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that this is where I was meant to be. Jennifer describes that inspiration as an answer to prayer. But that doesn't mean it was easy. In fact, she says her first attempts at stand-up comedy were kind of awful. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Because I I was going down to comedy clubs in Austin where nobody knows me. And usually I would be the only woman getting up on stage, the, the only one coming in from the suburbs, the only person with kids, certainly the only person with six kids. When I was sitting at home, I enjoyed the writing process since I do have that writing background. But then getting up on stage and bombing, and I did bomb a lot at first, it's just the most horrible thing. It's like, you know, we have the litany of humility that you can pray. I was living the litany of humility because I kept getting up in these clubs and I could not make these people laugh. And so I'd have an audience at a comedy club just staring at me and not laughing. It was horrible. Stand-up comedy is a difficult thing to do. And when your audience doesn't laugh at your jokes, that's a really discouraging experience. Jennifer said those early attempts were discouraging. But what kept her going was the thought of the audience that she hoped to reach. The moms and dads living ordinary lives, raising kids, who could use some comedy that spoke specifically to their experiences. These people are fighting the good fight, and they have hard lives, and they have struggles, and... And I thought no one is bringing entertainment to them, certainly comedy entertainment that speaks to their perspective. I think that comedy relieves burdens and nobody is relieving my people's burdens with this type of entertainment. And so over and over again, it, it's just kept me going when I feel like giving up, which is all the time. <laughs> it's, it's kept me going and, and fighting through this because I think there's a need for it. Eventually, that perseverance paid off. Jennifer learned a lot about how to write and present her material. She started getting laughs at the clubs in Austin, and she was able to take the next step, booking a stand-up tour at venues across the country, with hundreds or even thousands of people in the audience. And it's, it's been really cool to see how strong the audience response is. I mean, it's some, it's some places, the audiences are actually screaming, literally screaming with laughter. 
Most of her shows sold out. Jennifer thinks that part of the show's quick rise in popularity has been her audience's ability to relate to the things that she discusses. I think people find my show appealing because they feel seen and they feel understood. And I think that's what really resonating with people. About 60 to 70% of the audience at Jennifer's shows tend to be women. Some of them are familiar with Jennifer from the books she's written or from her radio show. But the tour attracts other people as well. College students and men planning guys trips and traveling across the country to see the show. And some people who aren't part of the Catholic world at all. The thing I love to see the most, and this is I, I just this is my favorite part of this whole tour, is people are inviting their friends from outside of our world. So after the show, someone will say, hey, I'm a Catholic homeschooling mom with four kids, but I brought my cousin. She's an atheist, but she wanted to come to the show with us. And so because it's just stand-up comedy, it's a no-pressure event. It's just all about having a good time. People are bringing their friends who are outside of our little Catholic world. Jennifer doesn't shy away from parenting and suburban life in her comedy. In fact, she embraces it. She says there's a lot of comedy to be found in modern family life. I think all good comedy comes from areas of life where there is tension. And like anyone else, I lie awake at night worrying if I'm a good enough mother, worrying about my kids' education, worrying if I'm drinking too much wine each week or whatever it is. And so that leads to comedy. Wherever there is tension, you can usually unpack some pretty good comedy there. She also says that her Catholic faith is crucial in her comedy. I would say that it's it's key to my success as a comedian because in order for comedy to work, it has to be predicated on the truth. It, you know, if a comedian were to stand up and I've seen comedians do this, they'll they'll make some jokes that have an underlying assumption, for example, that men and women are absolutely identical, that, that there's absolutely no difference between men and women. Well, those jokes don't work because the audience understands on some level that that's, it's just not true, that they're just not coming from a true perspective. And so understanding, you know, having this great Catholic worldview, it, it gives me a basis of truth that I can kind of bounce off of in my comedy. And I would say that it, it's, it's kind of like my secret weapon. Like it, it makes comedy easy for me in a way that I have that foundation of truth that I'm working with. Even though the show has been successful, it hasn't always been easy. Jennifer said she's had to work hard to balance her new endeavor with her family, her husband and six kids at home. It has been difficult. I would not say that I've been always doing a great job. But a big, big thing that we started years ago in our family is that any career or work type project that either I or my husband undertake, we do together. It is always an us thing. It's not a me thing. With this family emphasis in mind, she paired her kids into three groups. Each pair got to pick a city and travel there to attend her show. When Jennifer filmed a stand-up comedy special in front of 1,000 people at a major theater in Chicago, she brought her whole family with her. It was incredible, and all six kids came out for that. We made the investment to fly them all out there, and it was such a special evening for our whole family. She also brings her family into the creative process. My kids actually helped me 
with my comedy in that I, I do something that I call garage comedy where I get the kids and the friends and like friends and neighbors and I run through my jokes with them. And what's funny is that my kids tend to laugh at the exact same places that comedy club audiences laugh, which is kind of, I guess it makes sense that like drunk comedy club audiences are about at a fifth grade level. So I, I guess that makes sense. But so they actually help me with my material. My kids know my set back and forth and, and their feedback is amazingly good. They'll say, there's no punchline in this joke. That's why we didn't laugh. There's no punch there. So my family very much feels like this is their project as much as it's my project. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, Jennifer has had to press pause on her comedy tour. She says she's eager to resume touring when it's safe. You can find updated information on her website, naughtycornertour.com. You can also join Jennifer's email list to stay updated when new cities are added to the tour. To other Catholics out there who may have an interest in trying stand-up comedy, Jennifer has one message. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Stand-up comedy is a very, very, very hard thing to do. And so if you feel moved to that, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I think God's calling you to do it and you should do it because it's, it is not most people's call. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. Dale Restinella remembers the first time he ever set foot in a death row prison. First time I went to death row, uh, it was clear that I knew absolutely nothing about it because anybody who knows anything about death row in the South, and that includes Louisiana and Texas, uh, there's no air conditioning. Anybody who knows anything about death row in the South doesn't start in the summer. And I started in August. <laughs> the only reason for not having an air conditioning is that no legislator wants to run for re-election and be attacked by his opponent for being nice to bad people. So the very first thing that struck me, my first experience was, I can't believe we're still doing this in the 20th century. This is the 1990s. I can't believe we're still doing this and holding people in these conditions in the 20th century. Dale never expected to be stepping into a prison in Florida, but it was the culmination of a life shift that led him to leave behind his life as a high-powered Wall Street lawyer in favor of a life meeting with and befriending people who had been condemned to die. Dale was working as a lawyer in the 80s. He had it all, career-wise, and was doing very well for himself. Ironically, he actually helped to put together the financing for several of Florida's prisons. I was handling Wall Street finance out of Florida as a lawyer, uh, first as a partner in a major law firm in Miami, and then uh, as a supervising attorney at a uh, very significant law firm in Tallahassee. Although Dale's family life and career were going great by any measure, he began reassessing how he had been using his skills and his gifts up to that point. We each in our own way had a very significant, uh, how do you say it, uh, revitalization of our sense of commitment to put our life into uh, service of our faith and of our church. A desire began to stir in both Dale and his wife, a desire to give back. So they got involved in a ministry to the homeless. 
At that time, one of the biggest problems facing the homeless people Dale encountered was AIDS. The real scourge, this is 1988, 1989, the real scourge of the homeless population in our city, Tallahassee, at that time was AIDS. So we ended up uh, taking the state training to get certified to work with people with AIDS, which we did, and we did it through the local uh, AIDS service organization. Eventually, the organizer of the ministry approached Dale to see if he'd be willing to go a little deeper. And uh, he asked if I would be willing to come to his prison and start seeing men that were terminal with cancer and AIDS. What I didn't have the courage to tell him was I'd never been in a prison. I had financed prisons on Wall Street all over the country, huge prisons, but I'd never been in one and had no desire to go in one. (laughs) I didn't tell him that. I took the uh, Christian punt, which I guess because I'm a Catholic Christian, it's a Catholic Christian punt. And I said, I am so honored at your request, chaplain. I will pray about that. Dale's family helped convince him that he should take the plunge. It was Susan and the kids quoting Jesus from the gospel in Matthew 25 that convinced me that if my faith was really guiding my life, that Jesus had said when we visited the least in prison, we visited him. But when we didn't, we had refused to visit him. And so I figured I'd give it a shot. And what happened was there were over 50 men in line to sign up for a spiritual counseling appointment when I got to this prison. It was a prison with over 2,000 men, huge prison. Obviously, they didn't all have cancer and AIDS, but uh, the chapel clerk who uh, gave me the list and we started setting up a schedule, he looked at me and he said, can I have an appointment? And I, I looked at him very sarcastically and said, what's your terminal condition? And this Southern Baptist kid from South Georgia looked at me and smiled and said, Sin, can you handle that? (laughs) This was back in the early 1990s. Dale quickly realized he had a heart for prison ministry. But it would be a couple years before the idea of death row really crossed Dale's mind, when he and his family ended up moving to the small town of McClenny, Florida, about an hour west of Jacksonville. That town just happened to be the home of Florida's death row. Our parish there was its the only Catholic church between Jacksonville and Lake City, which is a distance of 75 miles. And uh, we moved there, and none of our neighbors had ever met a Catholic before. Florida, especially the northern part and the Panhandle, falls squarely in the Bible Belt, which consists mostly of southern states with Baptist majorities. Since 1976, Nearly 90% of all the executions in the United States have taken place in this region. In fact, Dale found during his research that just 2% of U.S. counties accounted for over half of the executions in the U.S. since 1976. In the last few years, counties in Texas, Missouri, and yes, Florida, have routinely topped that list. It became clear that God was asking us to put me where the church needed my experience and my skills, and that was Death Row, which was 15 miles from our church in McClenny. So I'm meeting these people one after another, and uh, one of them looked like a neighbor kid who might come and offer to mow your lawn, you know? 19, 20 years old. Another one was older than my dad at that time. 
uh, in his 70s. And everybody else was somewhere in between. And nobody was hostile. Nobody was whatever. You know, I mean, they, they, they welcomed seeing me. And I'm, and I'm trying to get my head around the fact that we're holding these people in this situation until we kill them. By the way, this is where the really big shift in Dale's life comes in. Because in order to embrace his new calling, he had to give up a big part of his old life. The people at Department of Corrections Tallahassee immediately recognized my name and they said, are you Dale Resinella, the lawyer? I said, yes. They said, you can't go in our maximum security prisons, you're a lawyer. And, and, and what the, the concern was legitimate. They said, you know, if the inmates know you're a lawyer and they ask you to help them and you say no, they're going to stick a shank in you. I said, well, how about if I agree with the department that so long as I'm doing this, I will not practice law. And they said, any law, not even a parking ticket for a priest. <laughs> but uh, I said, absolutely, I'll agree to that. Dale is still a lawyer, technically. He still has his license. But he gave up the practice of law to minister to the death row inmates. In addition to spending several days a week visiting inmates himself, he also trains other people to do prison ministry and has acted as a witness for nearly 20 executions so far. I was not ready to handle the spiritual challenges of dealing with the level of human suffering that we've experienced in street ministry, AIDS ministry, prison ministry, and death row ministry. And that's what we've learned is uh, this is really meant to be done in gangs, if you will. <laughs> but gangs of Christians doing the gospel. And uh, so we've had to make sure that we have a community of accountability that's calling us to be honest with ourselves. And for me, with death row, that is to make sure I'm dealing with the suffering uh, in the way our church provides for us to do it. You know, we have the, the disciplines, we have the Eucharist, we have the Mass. We also have the traditions, though, of the great models of faith that have gone before us who have over the long haul hung in there. They didn't, they didn't burn out, but they did have to take breaks. Even Francis of Assisi needed to go up to the mountain. And there were times when he said to Claire, I don't want to come back down. It's too hard. And she said, you have to. You're not made to go up to the mountain. You're, you're made to go there to recharge. But you've got to come back down into the valley in the midst of the people who are driving you crazy and minister to them. That's the task God gave you. Across the world, some 70% of all countries have ended capital punishment. But in the U.S., despite trends away from the death penalty in some states, in others, it's continuing even in the midst of a pandemic. The fact that support for capital punishment remains so strong in parts of the country where it seemed to Dale that nearly everyone was Christian troubled him. So several years ago, Dale wrote a book identifying 44 requirements of the biblical death penalty when it was the law of the land in Israel, such as the ban on circumstantial evidence, treating all offenders equally, establishing unquestionable guilt, etc. I identified 44 absolute non-waivable requirements of the biblical death penalty that had to be met before it could even be considered. By contrast, he found that the death penalty in Florida and the U.S. fulfilled none of those requirements. And when I held those up against our death penalty in the United States, and it doesn't matter which state you're in, we're zero for 44. 
Dale's experience over the years has also shown him how inequitable the death penalty can be, how it disproportionately affects people of minority races, and how those who are poor are less likely to be able to appeal their conviction. For example, his research found that a prisoner is more than 10 times more likely to be executed if it was a black defendant and a white victim than if it were a white defendant and a black victim. In Florida, nearly 40% of death row is black out of a population that's only 15% black. This is the real death penalty. It's not the thing that the death penalty supporters think it is. The real death penalty is a monstrosity. It's error prone. It's full of mistakes and human failings. And uh, yes, we get it wrong. Last month, the Bishop of St. Augustine, Felipe Estevez, released a pastoral letter calling for an end to the death penalty and quoting extensively from Dale's work. Dale still visits prisoners on death row and offers them one-on-one spiritual counseling, right now over the phone because of the pandemic. Dale has really given his life over to his ministry, and the time he's put in have led to real, meaningful relationships. Susan and I, since coming to death row, I think we've accumulated about 30-some either godchildren or confirmation godchildren. And those are long-term relationships. The gospel brings us into long-term relationships with the people who are suffering and who the world doesn't want relationship with. One such prisoner, James Daly, is one of at least 50 Catholics on Florida's death row. He's in his 70s, and he's been on death row in Florida for 33 years. Daly has maintained his innocence ever since he was convicted of a 1985 murder. The state hasn't yet been able to produce any physical or forensic evidence tying Daly to the killing, and Dale, having spent a lot of time with Daly over the years, believes he's innocent. He's a very stable, uh, even-keeled guy, tremendous sense of humor. You know, it's interesting because when the call is connected through from the warden's office to the death house, the officers always have to uh, pick it up and verify who's there. And uh, one of them said to me, you know, he's doing better than we are. (laughs) There was another man that Dale got to know a few years ago on death row, who became another of his many godchildren, who was told he would likely die of cancer before his execution. There was nobody to claim his body and bury him. And in the state of Florida, if you die any place in the prison system and your body goes unclaimed, you are cremated and your remains are put in a place called Boot Hill, which is a pauper's unclaimed bodies cemetery in Rayford. And the marker on your grave doesn't even have your name on it. It has your DC number. There is no humiliation that says nobody in the world gave a hoot about this person like getting buried in Boot Hill. And this guy looked at me and he said, I don't want to be buried in Boot Hill. Can I be buried with you and Susan? I said, well, I know my response, but we have a small family plot for us and a couple family members. And it's not just mine. It's also Susan. So I can't answer that until I talk to her. Well, she, of course, said, absolutely. He was a godson to both of us. And uh, I came back and I said, absolutely, you can be buried with Susan and I. And he looked at me and he said, with a real sly grin, can I be buried between you? And I looked at him and I said, I don't have to ask her. My answer is absolutely not. She's going to be on one side of me. You're going to be on the other side of me. 
and I'm going to be in the middle keeping my eye on you. We already have our, our grave plot and our marker. Uh, the only thing that's lacking is our expiration dates because we didn't want our kids to ever have to go through arranging all that. Well, he's buried there too with a marker that matches ours. And it says, Godson and friend. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. That's our show, everybody. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Jennifer Fulweiler, to Father Ron Catani, and to Dale Resinella. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.